All right. So um, there's this great scene in the uh, now classic movie Jurassic Park. You all remember that one? Uh, Jurassic Park where two scientists, Dr. Ellie Sattler and Dr. Alan Grant, both of whom had devoted their careers to studying dinosaurs and studying the world of dinosaurs. But there's this moment where they come face to face with a real live dinosaur for the very first time. And uh, this is that scene. You can watch it. of Veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a hunt. This thing. Make you want to see the movie again? <laughs> oh, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So, well, you know, it's one thing to, am I really loud? I feel really loud. Or am I reverberating or something? I don't know. Okay. I'm okay? All right. Yeah. As long as you're okay, I'm okay. It's one thing to uh, piece together an informed but nonetheless imperfect image of dinosaurs, you know, by picking through fossils and bones and reading books and that kind of thing. But to encounter a real live dinosaur, you know, no comparison, right? Whole other ballpark you're in there. Well, in the same way, no matter how much we know about God, it's knowing him through first and experience that makes all the difference. Last week, we started a new sermon series that we're calling Love God, Love Others, period. You know, we believe Jesus wants us, Vineyard Church, to be a community of people who are being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And we're convinced that being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others will result in us all growing as people who love God and love others. And I think that's what matters to God more than anything, you know, that we love God, love others, period. And so that's our goal. That's where we're headed. That's what we're trying to do here. And we move toward that goal step by step. And, and we've identified what we think are five crucial stepping stones on the way to becoming people who love God, love others. Uh, like I said last week, these stepping stones don't form a linear path. You know, we don't just take each step once and then arrive. It's more like each stepping stone is an area we need to experience and, and grow in throughout our lives. So last week I talked about the first stepping stone, following Jesus as his disciples. That's a choice we make at the beginning of the journey 
And then it's a choice we make over and over again at deeper and deeper levels all through our life. And having made that choice to follow Jesus, then we begin to grow in knowing God, experiencing God, but knowing him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We grow in this real relationship with God, and that is our second stepping stone that I want to talk about today. So, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we just uh, welcome your presence. I thank you that you're here with us, uh, that you're moving among us, Holy Spirit, that you're at work in each of our lives, meeting us right where we're at and drawing us deeper into the knowledge of you, into this relationship with you. I pray for that today, Lord. Just come, Lord Jesus, and work in us, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings chapter 17 and beginning in the first verse. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from that brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Well, Elijah is this prophet that kind of just bursts into the story of Scripture out of nowhere. You know, we really know nothing about his background other than that he came from a, a town called Tishbe in Gilead, which is an area east of the Jordan River, so in what would today be the kingdom of Jordan. That's where apparently he grew up. And many regard Elijah as the greatest of the prophets. He was this man of zeal, a man of action, a man who was clearly anointed by God with power. Elijah served as a prophet during the reign of King Ahab of Israel, who was married to the infamous Jezebel, the daughter of a Phoenician king. Now, most of the rulers of Israel during this time were pretty bad, but Ahab and Jezebel ranked among the very worst. They legitimized and nationalized the worship of Baal and Asherah, uh, the old Canaanite fertility gods, actually the god of, you could say, productivity and sex, and led their whole kingdom into the horrible practices of those idolatries. So it's easy to read the story of Elijah and his confrontation with Ahab as a story in which everything Elijah does was good and right in his battle against evil. And much of it was. But if that is all we see, we will miss what God wants to say to us about growing in our relationship with him. So there's a tendency I think we all have to see people as all good or completely evil, don't we? I mean, we tend to do that just naturally. We elevate the people that we like or the people we agree with, uh, and we demonize those we don't. 
And then we deny or we ignore the bad in those we like as if we can't make any room at all for them being anything less than perfect. But of course, they are less than perfect, right? We all are. People are complex. Good people sometimes do bad things. And bad people sometimes do very good things. Very few people are totally one or the other. In fact, I would say Jesus is the only person who ever lived who is totally good. That's why we want him to change us and make us like him, right? That being like Jesus, being people who, like him, love God, love others, period. That's the goal for all of us. And the good news is he's doing that, right? He's in work in each of us, making us more like him. Well, the first time Elijah shows up in the Bible, I got to say this, you know, Elijah's name in Hebrew is Eliyahu. Isn't that cool? I love that, Eliyahu. Uh, But first time we'll go with Elijah since we're more used to that. First time Elijah shows up in the Bible, he tells King Ahab that there is a drought coming. It's interesting, though, if you go back and you read that carefully, to note that the Bible doesn't say that God told Elijah to tell Ahab that it wasn't going to rain. I mean, maybe God did, but the text doesn't say that. And as you read Elijah's story, it seems like the Bible always makes it clear when Elijah is saying something that God told him to say. Now, I have no doubt that Elijah was confident that he was speaking for God when he predicted that drought. Elijah would have been a man who knew his scriptures. Uh, And in Deuteronomy 17, it says, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving to you. Well, clearly, that is what Ahab and Jezebel had done. They had caused Israel to turn aside and worship other gods. And so now Elijah, in his passion and his zeal for God, was holding God to what was written in Deuteronomy, and he fully expected God to back him up. And God did. Then God does speak to Elijah, it tells us. And God sends Elijah east, out into the desert by the book Cherith, where the ravens would feed him. That was probably partly to keep Elijah safe from Ahab at that point. But any time God sends someone into the desert, it's also for a time of testing. Now, testing for God does not mean grading your performance. That's what we usually think it means, don't we? Um, You know, deciding whether we pass or fail. That's not what it means when the Bible says God tests someone. Testing means showing you what is really inside of you, what's really within you, both what is good within you and what still needs to be transformed by God's grace. 
testing is meant to humble us. It's meant to show us our need for God, like we sang about just a little bit ago, right? So that we're open to receiving God's grace. So maybe, just maybe, out there in the desert, God was giving Elijah an opportunity to know himself better so that he could know God better. Has God ever led you into the desert? (laughs) A time, a place that seems dry or desolate or empty or hopeless where you feel alone? I think we've all been there, right? Some of us are there now. God leads all of us there in different ways at different times. It's part of our journey with him. And it's his mercy at work in our lives when he does that because he's drawing us to a place of knowing him better. Let me read on. This is the first two verses of chapter 18. We're going to kind of skip through parts of the story this morning. After many days, this is many days of being out in the desert, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. We don't actually know how long Elijah spent out there in the desert being fed by ravens because at some point while he was there, God spoke to him and he sent him on to Zarephath, which was a village outside of Israel to help out a non-Jewish widow, which is interesting all in of itself. You know, and maybe that was meant to be part of Elijah's testing too. I skipped over that section, but you can go back, read 1 Kings 17 and read all about it later. But then after the drought had been going on for more than two years, in the third year it tells us, God told Elijah to go speak to Ahab and tell him it's going to rain. The rain is coming. It's like God said, okay, Elijah, I gave you your drought, but enough is enough. And note the only thing God tells Elijah to do now is to go and tell Ahab that the rain is coming. It's the only thing he says to say to him. And Elijah, of course, obeys, but he does so in his own fiery, zealous, confrontational way. And we'll pick that up in verses 17 and 19 of of chapter 18. So it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. 
And then what follows in the rest of that chapter is that famous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And as much as I would love to tell you that whole story and get into it, I don't have time. So again, go read it yourself later in uh, chapter 18. It's an amazing story of the reality of God. It's all about the reality of God and the foolishness of worshiping idols. And, And clearly... I mean, don't get me wrong, God is in this event. He's demonstrating that he alone is God, and he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And clearly God backs Elijah up. He honors Elijah as his prophet in all that Elijah did there, even though all God had told Elijah to do was tell Ahab what? The rain is coming. That's all he said to do. At the end of that confrontation, Elijah slaughters the 450 prophets of Baal, just like Jezebel had earlier tried to slaughter all of the prophets of God. Yes, so often we think if our cause is right or good, we're justified in using the means of worldly power and violence to accomplish it. But I suspect God was shaking his head at this point and saying, Elijah, Elijah, you don't really know me yet, do you? So there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's translated as no in our English Bibles, and that word is yada. You want to practice your Hebrew? Yada. Great word. It means to know someone in the deepest and most intimate way. In Genesis, where it says Adam knew his wife and conceived and bore a son, the word used is yada. You know, so you get the idea. It's this intimate knowledge. Hello. (laughs) God already yadas you. You know that, right? He knows you in the deepest and most intimate way. He knows everything about you. There is nothing about you that is hidden from God, not even those things you might try to hide from him. God knows you completely. He knows you fully. He knows you intimately. God nadas you. He knows everything about you. And knowing everything about you, he loves you. Absolutely. That good news? God already does you. What he wants, the reason Jesus came and lived and died and rose again is so that you can yadah him. So that you can know God as intimately as he knows you. Not just know about him, but know him through encountering God, through experiencing God, kind of like how those scientists experienced dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, right? Elijah knew God for sure. I mean, to some degree. 
I mean, he certainly knew a lot about God. He knew the Torah. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew the law. He knew the covenants. He knew what was expected of Israel. He knew the chaos that would result from worshiping idols. Elijah knew all about that. And Elijah knew the awesomeness and the power and the reality of God. But I don't believe he fully yadad God yet at that point. So God sent Elijah back into the desert. Now the story in 1 Kings 19 tells us that Elijah ran to the desert because he was afraid, because Jezebel was going to kill him. You know, because he was discouraged and exhausted by the realization that his big power confrontation with the prophets of Baal hadn't really changed the hearts of the Israelites at all. Didn't accomplish what he wanted it to do. But we know God works through all things for our good, right? Always. God was the one at work through all of that, sending Elijah back into the desert because God cared far more about Elijah than he cared about what Elijah did. What God wanted more than anything was for Elijah to yadah him because knowing God is where we find our life. So God sent Elijah back into the desert for more testing. It says he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. That's a clue, right? 40 is the biblical number of testing. And God led him to a cave on Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And there in that cave, God spoke again to Elijah. This is 1 Kings 19, 11 to 13. It says, And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke the, in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And I'm guessing Elijah, the mighty prophet, was probably thinking, Yeah, the mighty wind of God, right? This is it. Then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Elijah's sure this is it. You know, this is the power of God, or the God of power that he knows. But it says the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Elijah's like, I am all about fire. This is great, <laughs> right? But the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, it says. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came to him a voice uh, and said, Elijah, Elijah. See, here's what I think. If Elijah, you know, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel, a man who certainly knew God way more than a lot of other people did, you know, who knew a lot about God, 
you know, who knew his scriptures, who walked in the power of God, if Elijah needed to encounter God personally and experience God personally so that he could come to truly know God, to yada God as he really is, not just how Elijah imagined him to be. If Elijah needed that, how much more do we? See, this is why we put such an emphasis here on those practices of contemplative spirituality. You know, ways in which we intentionally, regularly slow down and stop what we're doing, even for just a few minutes, to sit in silence before God or meditate on the Scriptures or pour out your heart in prayer to God or join in worship on Sundays or seek God's presence out in nature or through art or through music or however you do, it's, it's by... Doing these things, it's like we are creating little desert spaces in our lives. We're going out into the desert. See, we can't generate an experience of God, right? We can't make an encounter with God happen. But when we create that desert space in our lives, God will test us there. He will show us what's in our hearts and he'll reveal his hearts to us, his heart. And he'll fill that empty space with his presence. Sometimes when we do that, we're going to feel his presence. Many times we won't. But over the course of of days and weeks and years of intentionally and regularly going to the desert in this way, we grow to yada God. And as we do, Jesus transforms us. He makes us more like him. Amen? Amen.